0: A note before we get started. This episode contains references to sexual violence. From January 1995 to the beginning of October, a courtroom in Los Angeles became the center of the universe.
1: Now to perhaps the most publicized murder case in American history, the O.J. Simpson trial.
0: The trial of the century was about everything. Celebrity and race and who gets justice in America. It was also a TV spectacle, full of unexpected twists. As Simpson struggled
2: to slide the gloves onto his hand and turned toward jurors saying, they're too small, prosecutors were incensed. Tapes of the now-retired Los Angeles police detective
0: were played in court using the so-called N-word over and over again. But the case against O.J. Simpson centered on something more elemental.
2: Blood on the door handle and throughout the inside of O.J. Simpson's Ford Bronco, including a partial bloody footprint on the driver's side floorboard.
0: All of that blood was the substance of the O.J. trial, the evidence that pointed most clearly to his guilt. Take just the socks found in O.J. Simpson's bedroom. According to the prosecution's numbers, the
3: probability that some blood on those socks belong to anyone other than Nicole
0: Brown, are no better than one in almost eight billion. This kind of matching of a drop of blood to an individual person was made possible by DNA testing.
4: It's the most powerful forensic tool since the discovery of fingerprinting.
0: As of 1995, DNA evidence had been used in criminal cases for about a decade, But the science behind it wasn't well-known or understood. CSI wasn't on the air yet, and Ancestry.com hadn't launched. So, the prosecution in the OJ trial had some explaining to do. To get a conviction, they'd need to teach Biochemistry 101. Where is DNA actually found in our bodies? It's found in the nucleus of each cell. The O.J. Simpson case introduced millions of Americans to the ins and outs of deoxyribonucleic acid. And it was the highest profile test of a scientific technique with the potential to transform the justice system.
2: Even if this science has the power to find the very chromosomes of a killer, what the courts want to know is whether DNA can be trusted.
0: But the O.J. trial wasn't happening in isolation. Other cases, all over the country, were also hinging on this new technology. One of them was in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
2: On that particular night in May of 94, this shift sergeant asked us to go out to an apartment to pick up some photographs of a woman reported missing.
0: That's Peter Stipe. He was a patrol officer for the Ann Arbor Police. The missing woman was named Christine Galbraith. She was 32 years old and lived on the city's tree-lined, peaceful west side. Her husband had last seen her earlier that same day, May 7th, 1994.
2: Her uh, intention was to go to the grocery store. She had some returnable cans. It was raining all day. So she took her umbrella and took her backpack and she had started a pot of beans on the stove. And then he laid down to take a nap. And then when he woke up
0: a couple hours later, the the beans were scorched in the pan and, and she wasn't back yet. It was now about 10.30 at night, cold and rainy. Christine Galbraith's husband showed Peter their usual path to the store, but they didn't find any trace of her. Then they tried a different route, through a vacant lot. On that path, they found her groceries and red umbrella. Peter brought her husband back to his patrol car and asked him to wait in the front seat. Then he headed back out, with another officer,
2: my partner, they had a super bright magnum light, and he he, he shined it over uh, probably about twenty feet off the path, and he, he says, "There's something over there." And he goes, "I think that's that's her." We took a couple of steps over there, and, and it was it was a a body. Her sweater and, and coat and top had been pulled up over her head. She was you know twisted, laying face up, and uh, her her pants and undergarments were pulled down. It looked like the victim had been hit, you know, had been punched, and she had no, no pulse and, and no breathing. So uh, so we f- knew we had a homicide.
0: Peter had been a policeman for nine years. He'd never seen anything as brutal as this. I'm holding a handful of
2: these photographs where she's smiling and, and you know, brightly alive, and, and here, here she is, just, you know, a murder victim.
0: The rape and killing of Christine Galbraith shocked Ann Arbor. So did the investigation that came after. The police would turn to drastic methods based on the promise and power of DNA. For law enforcement, genetic testing looked like a surefire way to find the criminal and to stop the violence. But DNA didn't fix anything in Ann Arbor. Instead, it ripped the community apart
5: don't walk near bushes, don't walk in the woods, don't walk alone. At that point, all black males became suspect.
3: I thought that somehow I was going to go down for this.
0: In this week's episode... A quest for justice that ensnared all the wrong people. This is One Year, 1995. Ann Arbor's DNA dragnet. In the 1990s, Outside magazine named Ann Arbor the best place in America to raise a family. The story called it almost alarmingly wholesome, with a ton of green space, the prestigious University of Michigan, and plenty of safe neighborhoods. Ann Arbor was a safe place, with an extremely low rate of violent crime. It felt shocking and scary when that peace got interrupted. Two years before Christine Galbraith's murder, a 47-year-old woman was beaten unconscious and raped while out walking in the woods on Ann Arbor's west side. The year after that, there were two more rapes on the west side that followed a similar pattern. An assailant snuck up on a woman and struck her from behind. For women in Ann Arbor, these attacks were incredibly unnerving. I mean, my power walking got to be almost running. Uh, when
5: I would walk home because I was afraid.
0: Mary Valerie Richter owned a fitness and massage therapy center in downtown Ann Arbor. I
5: was just thinking it's dark
0: out. I can't
5: really see what's behind me. I need to just go forward. It's a horrible feeling to be a target and be in a situation where you couldn't see this guy because he came up from behind
0: you. That method meant none of the victims had gotten a good look at who'd attacked them. But the police did release some information about the suspect in the first rape. They believed he was a black male, probably in his 30s, with a muscular build. The description of the person involved in this
6: case was very vague. And so just talking to black males, being a black male, I I I knew what that was going to, to be like for people
0: like me. That's Jeffrey Chidea. He covered the police for the Ann Arbor News. Based on his experience, he didn't think the department understood the power of that vague description, that a huge number of Black men would now be viewed with suspicion. If there was a Black detective, if there was
6: a Black senior commander or a a, a person at that level of color, I don't remember seeing that person. So you didn't even have anybody in the building to have these kind of
0: conversations. For Black men in the city, day-to-day life became a lot more nerve-wracking.
7: I would go home sometimes, you know, after midnight, and
0: uh, as I was going towards my apartment, um, I would get pulled over. Mike Henry worked at the University of Michigan Business School. Growing up, he'd never had any serious interactions with the police. That changed once the rapes in Ann Arbor began.
7: It was for stuff like, you know, one time the, (laughs) the officer said, I pulled you over because your license plate is secured with one bolt and not two. It was a bunch of BS. After about the fifth or sixth time, I was really starting to get
0: irritated and just like, why are you guys stopping me all the time? Ann Arbor was widely seen as a progressive community, a place that was politically and socially enlightened and where everybody got along. A lot of the city's black residents didn't see it that way. Liberal Ann Arbor is, unfortunately, shine without substance. Edith Lewis was a professor of social work at the University of Michigan. We bought a house on the west side of town. And literally, people would drive by
4: and ask if I was the maid or ask if I did the gardening or just follow us around. So it was not an easy place to be. They've had this fear of people they don't know socialized into them without knowing any people in the Black community without having any interactions with people in the Black community, it's a very easy thing to make them a target. To make us a target.
0: There were around 10,000 Black people in Ann Arbor, a city of more than 100,000. The relationship between the police and the city's Black residents had never been rosy. But after the rapes, it got worse.
7: We kind of just internalized it as like, you know, this is the norm because this is how the police treat us and this is what you have to do. It didn't make me feel uh, like I wanted to ever help the police. You know, it was just like, you know what, (laughs) you guys are kind of out to get me. Um, You guys suck. Uh, I really don't want to have a whole lot to do with you.
0: As of the spring of 1994, the rapes on Ann Arbor's west side were still unsolved but the police had recovered semen samples in all three cases. Those samples got sent to the state crime lab for DNA testing. The end
6: result is a striped pattern that looks like the barcodes used in supermarkets. This can be compared
0: with another sample and will match only if the samples came from the same person or from identical twins. The DNA tests showed there was a match. All three rapes had been committed by the same man, That meant there was a serial predator at large in Ann Arbor. That was an important discovery, but the police didn't make any kind of announcement. Instead, they sat on the information. And then there was a fourth attack, the rape and murder of Christine Galbraith. Reporter Jeffrey Chedia, I remember sitting down
6: with the person who ran the police information in the sort of said to me, look, you know, there's a bigger story going on here because we suspect this is a situation that is linked to other rapes that have happened in the area. And so to think about not only a homicide, but a a maniacal person running around the streets of Ann Arbor, it was kind of hard to process that.
5: I felt like they were not being honest with the public.
0: Mary Valerie Richter.
5: You know, it's like, wait a minute. If I had known, maybe I would have operated differently. Maybe those women would have operated differently.
0: Mary felt she had to take action, to do whatever she could to fill the gaps the police had left open. She created a support network so women could coordinate their schedules and walk together for safety. She also started teaching self-defense in her fitness classes.
5: We did kickboxing moves where I would have them visualize aiming for the side of the knee. I would have them yell as loud as they could. And what was interesting about that is, is, um, you know, some
0: of us learned we didn't know how to yell. It just didn't come out. Police officials defended their handling of the case. They said they'd kept quiet about there being a serial rapist because they thought the man had left town. But after the murder in May 1994, they got a lot more aggressive. 20 detectives were assigned to the case, and the police released a psychological profile of the suspect. They explained that he was probably a loner and that if he had a job, it was something like working in a car wash or pushing a broom. They said that he was potentially responsible for six more attempted rapes. The police also told the public that he appeared to be targeting white women. That last part would turn out not to be true. One of the women he attacked was Asian American. Regardless, it was an inflammatory claim, playing into a stereotype invoked throughout the nation's history to justify racist violence.
6: We, we've seen it going back for you know for centuries. That here's this big, angry sex star black guy, you know, preying on white women. You'd hope that people would have been able to project how dangerous that kind of stuff would be to the overall goal of resolving the case.
0: The attacks were dividing Ann Arbor into camps, each afraid and anxious for a different reason.
6: Certainly you had women who were terrified and a population of black males who who were going to be facing a, a different type of pain. Everybody has a justifiable perspective, a reason to be unhappy and a reason to want closure, but I
0: also knew that wasn't going to happen. It had been almost two years since the first attack. Law enforcement was getting desperate. They needed better leads and a new approach. One of Peter Stipe's colleagues with the Ann Arbor Police thought a true crime bestseller might have the answer they'd been looking for. Joseph
2: Wambaugh had written this book called The, The Blooding, and it was about a a pair of homicides and rapes that had baffled the English
0: police. Those homicides and rapes happened in the 1980s. To solve the crimes, English authorities embarked on something totally unprecedented, an enormous DNA sweep. We set up testing
1: stations and um, we started to test the male population.
0: In those days, cheek swabs for DNA were pretty much unheard of police in England drew blood from 5,511 men. None of them were a match for the killer. They caught him months later when they discovered he'd hidden his identity to avoid sharing his genetic material. England's DNA dragnet got a lot of attention in America. Peter Stipe says the Ann Arbor police thought it was worth a try.
2: The suggestion of soliciting blood from all these
0: guys was pitched, and somebody thought it was a a good idea. The only real evidence the police had was the serial rapist's DNA. They believed that large-scale genetic testing was their best chance to catch him. And if someone's blood wasn't a match, that would be useful information too. One more name, they could cross off their list. Only a handful of jurisdictions in the U.S., had ever tried anything like this. But the Ann Arbor police decided to go ahead. They were going to launch a DNA dragnet.
2: We'd be given, you know, two to three names or, or a name uh, to bring in and you go notify them. We're, we're investigating this series of, of rapes and we're eliminating people that match this general description by just having them, you know, come in and give a, uh, give a blood sample.
0: But that general description wasn't much more than a black male, probably in his 30s, with a muscular build. That covered a huge proportion of the black men in Ann Arbor. One of those men was Blair Shelton.
3: Some people probably just looked at it like, it's just blood, it's no big deal, but it's a lot more than that to me.
0: We'll be back in a minute. Blair Shelton grew up in Ann Arbor, the son of a nurse and an electrician. Growing up, he learned to ride a unicycle and picked up the guitar.
3: I saw Jimi Hendrix when I was a kid and uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do, something uh, on a
0: Fender Stratocaster. In the late 60s and early 70s, he went to a large Catholic school. Six of the seven Black students were Blair and his five siblings.
3: I had friends there, but uh, sometimes I would go play with uh, a friend of mine, and the mother wouldn't realize until I got there that uh, I was Black, and they'd call my mom and say, you're gonna have to come pick up Blair.
0: Blair left Ann Arbor after high school, shipping off to a maritime training academy in Maryland.
3: And all they were teaching was stuff like how to tie knots and how much your finger's worth if it gets cut off, you know, stuff like that. I'm like, man, I'm getting out of here. And I'm a musician. I'm not a sailor.
0: Back in Michigan in the 1980s, he found work as a Michael Jackson impersonator and danced on a TV show called The Scene. Detroit's version of Soul Train.
6: Are you ready to throw down?
3: It was really cool because it went on all, all over Michigan, and if you danced on television and they, and they said your name, they introduced you, you get all kinds of fan mail.
0: In the early 90s, he taught dance workshops for teenagers. In 1994, when he was 36 years old, he had steady work as a custodian at a couple of schools and at a TJ Maxx retail store.
3: The reason I took that job at TJ Maxx it was because I could walk out of the house across the street and be there.
0: When Blair showed up for his shift on October 27th, he could tell right away that something was wrong.
3: So as I walk in, everybody's looking at me. They go, uh, the boss wants to see you in the office. I say, oh, okay. So I go back there, and she's in there, and uh, she stands up. And she starts backing up. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if she realized she was doing this. She starts backing up in the corner and she said, uh, uh, Blair, the police came in.
0: Blair says, the boss told him, that a detective had come to the store. That detective had said that Blair was a suspect in the serial rape investigation.
3: I said, What the serial? Who? serial rapist, you know, when they she said serial, I thought she'd something. somebody's missing serial out of the break
0: room. Blair didn't know it, but someone had submitted an anonymous tip with his name on it. The tipster said they had no reason to believe Blair was the rapist, other than that he lived in the area and fit the vague description released by the police. Ann Arbor residents had a financial incentive to inform on their neighbors there was a nearly $40,000 reward for information leading to the suspect's arrest, an amount that would soon increase to $100,000. You could collect that money even if you didn't identify yourself by submitting a piece of paper encoded with a five-digit number. If you led police to the rapist, you'd get a huge payout. If you named someone like Blair Shelton, who had nothing to do with the rapes, then no one would ever know that you'd cast suspicion on the wrong man. The boss at TJ Maxx told Blair that he should probably call that detective, the one who'd come to the store. So he did. Blair also called his mother. They went to the police station together.
3: You go down into this little dingy room, you know, you picture the, the naked light bulb swinging. The main thing is said, we're going to have to get a DNA sample. I said, "Why do you need a DNA?" He said, "Well, we, we,
0: we want you to uh, just to get yourself cleared." You know. He says the detective told him that it was pointless to refuse; that if he didn't comply, the police would just get a warrant. It seemed like he had no choice. They were going to jab a needle into his arm and take his blood.
3: So, they say we have to go over to this clinic. And they got this nurse in there, man, and uh, all the nurses are sitting, are standing around. And they're looking at you, man. There's nothing worse than a woman with her hands on her hips looking at you like you're a killer. It's the worst feeling in the world. And uh, she sticks a needle in. I go, ow! And then, uh, she says, "What are you crying for? Is it hurt that bad?" And the detective, when we're walking out, he goes, "What? You know what?" He said, "You almost made me cry in there too."
0: And I know he's full of it, man. I know it's really hard to remember and have to think on all of that stuff. It very easily comes to the surface for you, like that. You- yeah, it
3: does. Yeah. You'd think think it'd go away after 25 years, but man, it, it hurts more now than
0: ever. After his blood got taken, Blair got a card from the urgent care clinic, paperwork saying he'd submitted to a DNA test. He then got on a public bus to catch a ride to one of the schools where he worked as a custodian. A few moments later, a police officer got out of his patrol car and came toward the bus. Well, he comes
3: on, and he goes like this. The boy at me, and then everybody's looking at me. And before he said anything, I pull I said, I just gave a DNA sample, and he looks at the card, and I should have my arm out like this, and he, he said, okay, you can go. <laughs> um, pushes me back on the bus. And then I gotta go tell my other employer at the school
0: that uh, they think I'm a serial rapist. DNA test results could take a long time to come back. So Blair waited and continued to be hassled by the police. In line at a bagel shop, at a store buying milk, outside a movie theater. Each time, he produced that paper from the clinic, showing he'd already given his blood. And each time, he was told he was free to go. But he was still viewed with suspicion, and he was far from alone. A few blocks from where I was living was a
4: doctoral student, a brilliant young man. University of Michigan professor Edith Lewis. I knew him because we shared interests in African-American studies. Five o'clock one morning, bam, 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 on his door. His children are asleep. It's a Sunday. They wake up, and it takes eight police officers to take him out of his apartment because he's a suspect.
0: That's what it was like to live here then. Ann Arbor news reporter Jeffrey Chidia interviewed Black men who'd gotten interrogated by the police and who'd been pushed to give up their blood. He says that his white friends would check in with him and ask if he felt okay. People couldn't imagine a word where the police would come knocking on
6: your door because your neighbor said that guy could have killed somebody and murdered or raped somebody. That's even the worst feeling of knowing that someone thought you could have done this. <laughs> Not just that the police showed up to... Uh, ask you questions about this, but that someone
0: in the community saw you and figured you could be the person just based on how you looked. One black Ann Arbor resident said that when police came to take his blood, an officer called him O.J. Simpson. That man said, just like the women in this town, I'm scared to go out by myself at night.
2: We were rousting
0: uh, these guys uh,
2: at at length. And and. They were getting pissed about it. Police officer Peter Stipe. This was a homicide and a rape and a a brutal one. And to have your name implicated in any way, to have your neighbors, you know, see the police knocking on your door so you can be eliminated as if
0: if you'd done something to, to arouse suspicion. Activists in Ann Arbor were outraged by the DNA dragnet and formed a new alliance to combat it. The Coalition for Community Unity included representatives from the NAACP and the University of Michigan's Sexual Assault Prevention and Awareness Center. Edith Lewis was a part of that group. So was Mary Beejin.
1: We were meeting in coalition with the city attorney. We were meeting in coalition with the police to talk about how they were sowing even greater distrust, whose harm was being prioritized. You know, whose fear was being assuaged. I would argue that there were plenty of black men in Ann Arbor who were really afraid at the same time that there were women who were really afraid.
0: Blair Shelton got fired from his job at TJ Maxx five days after that detective came to the store. He was rehired then got fired again a couple of months later. He had a Camaro in his driveway, but never took it out. He was afraid the police would pull him over, or worse.
3: I had a big picture window in front of my house, and I'd had the lazy boy chair there, and i put a hat on the back of the chair so it looked like the person sitting in the chair was watching TV, and I wanted to see if the police were gonna uh, try to take a shot at whoever was sitting in the chair.
0: Women in Ann Arbor described feeling like prisoners, unable to walk outside alone, even in daylight. While the city handed out whistles for women to carry on their key rings, the activists in the Coalition for Community Unity distributed rights cards to Black men.
4: The blue card was simply a small piece of paper printed on front and back. It said, you do have the right to understand what charges are being made against you. They don't have the right to demand your bodily fluids.
0: A state police sergeant argued that no one had come up with any better ideas for how to catch the rapist. He said, it's like running a marathon. I don't know any other way than running the 26 miles. In November 1994, the Ann Arbor police took on another huge case there was a second attacker in the city. This one believed to be responsible for at least four sexual assaults over the previous four years. Police described him as a white male with a thick grayish-brown beard. It would take until 1996 to catch him, but the police never rounded up white men with facial hair. In the meantime, patrolman Peter Stipe was on the front lines of the department's DNA sweep, asking Black men for their blood.
2: This never seemed like the right way to to go about it. We weren't working, like, from the crime on out. We were working from the community on in. Like a, a needle in a haystack,
0: and we weren't even looking in the right haystack. 160 Black men would have their blood taken by the Ann Arbor police. Men like Blair Shelton, who were considered guilty... Until proven innocent,
3: I kind of uh, cut myself off from everything. I knew the police were looking to find something on me, you know, and that was a big fear. I really, I really thought they were going to send me to prison for some. I just, that's just the way I thought. I just, they always hold out the possibility of something. You had to do something.
0: Let's take a break. When the Ann Arbor police finally caught the serial rapist, it had nothing to do with the DNA dragnet. On December 23, 1994, a man snuck up on a woman walking alone and hit her in the face. When she screamed, he ran away. This victim got a decent look at her attacker. He was wearing a ski mask, a blue parka, and a pair of white gloves. The police passed around that description, And at 3.30 a.m. on Christmas morning, a cabbie spotted a man in white gloves. One of them was streaked with blood. That man was Irvin D. Mitchell Jr. DNA testing confirmed that he raped and killed Christine Galbraith and raped three additional women. He was convicted of those crimes in June 1995 and sentenced to life in prison. The Ann Arbor police had nearly caught Mitchell eight months before Christine Galbraith's murder. In September 1993, a woman was attacked from behind on the city's west side, Peter Stipe.
2: She was able to, to fight this guy off, and this was at probably 11 or 11.30 p.m. So we
0: called the canine unit out. The tracking dog followed ascent to a house close by.
2: And there was a guy in the, in the basement, and... And it was Irvin
0: Mitchell. The police asked Mitchell to let them take a blood sample, but he refused. He did agree to take a polygraph test. He passed. Although lie detectors are notoriously unreliable, the Ann Arbor police crossed Mitchell off their list, eliminating him as a suspect based on junk science. Extracting blood from 160 Black men would accomplish nothing and waste an extraordinary amount of time and resources. Ann Arbor's DNA dragnet never had a chance of succeeding. So no matter how many guys
2: we brought in, none of them were going to be the right guy because the right guy had been
0: dismissed. When the dragnet finally ended, Mike Henry, who worked at the University of Michigan Business School, felt like he could breathe again. Yeah, I was relieved. Um, You know, definitely relieved that the,
7: the rapist was off the streets, but also relieved that just maybe, maybe I, I won't
0: be a target anymore. <laughs> um, maybe I can, you know, feel a little freer. The fitness studio owner Mary Valerie Richter told a reporter she wasn't going to let her guard down. But eventually, she started walking by herself again.
5: I don't think women like to live that way. You've got this balance that you have to keep between being, you know, afraid, careful, and holding on to your power.
0: Blair Shelton spent months waiting for official confirmation that he was no longer a suspect. He finally got the reprieve he'd been desperate for over the phone.
3: You're not the rapist. Click. That's it. Just like that. I called back and I said, Ken, wait a minute. I think we got disconnected.
0: Even after he'd been cleared, Blair found it impossible to relax. He couldn't stop thinking about his blood. Now,
3: well, now can I get my DNA sample back?
0: In April 1995, Blair sued the city of Ann Arbor and its police department. He asked for damages and the return of his blood sample and DNA profile. He said he'd been harassed and intimidated into giving blood. He won a $60,000 settlement, but the DNA profile and the blood, those proved more difficult to pry loose. The Ann Arbor Police and other agencies said they needed to hold on to his genetic code in case Irvin Mitchell ever appealed his
1: conviction. Law enforcement, they would love a giant DNA database.
0: (laughs) Mary Bigen from the Coalition for Community Unity. She now works for the Michigan ACLU.
1: False identifications be damned. Trauma to people of color be damned. That's what they want um, because they believe it makes their work easier, although we don't think that it does, and it just puts people's rights at risk.
0: The coalition marched and gave the department a long list of demands. At the top of that list, the destruction or return of the blood samples taken from 160 Black men. The police didn't give in. Blair and his lawyers had to fight all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. I didn't think we were going to win. I didn't. um,
3: But I, I was really shocked.
0: They finally won in 1997. All 160 men had the right to get their DNA back. Blair's attorney collected the vials on his behalf.
3: I didn't feel relieved until Michael actually handed me my blood sample in his kitchen. That's when I felt relieved because I actually got it back. Yeah, I still got the DNA. It's in my refrigerator.
0: Is it? Do you see it every time you open the fridge? Yeah,
3: as soon as I open the door, it's it's been like that for 25 years everywhere I go. It's in a uh, glass case laying on top of an American flag, a little little miniature American flag, just because it happened in America, you know? This, this is, this is what America is.
1: We, the jury, in the above-entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code section.
5: Go find the killers! O.J. is innocent. So much evidence to deliberate for as short as they did, and come back with a not guilty verdict. I think it shows a. The jury was pretty irresponsible.
0: The verdict in the trial of the century came in October 1995. O.J. Simpson's lawyers had argued that the DNA evidence against him had been mishandled and contaminated and maybe even planted. But they never questioned the validity of DNA testing as a science. Even after that not guilty verdict, there wasn't any disputing DNA's utility in criminal court both to win convictions and to exonerate the wrongfully accused. The Innocence Project, founded by two of Simpson's attorneys, has overturned nearly 200 convictions with the help of DNA technology. DNA science is remarkably valuable when it's used in worthwhile ways. Ann Arbor's DNA dragnet drew national press coverage and nationwide condemnation. But that didn't stop other cities from trying the same approach. Oklahoma City, Omaha, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, they all conducted mass DNA sweeps of possible criminal suspects. None of them worked. It's now routine for police to collect DNA during all kinds of interactions. It takes only a couple of seconds and doesn't require a syringe. Just swab a Q-tip inside the subject's mouth. It's typically legal for law enforcement to retain those samples, even when a person hasn't been charged with a crime. The reporter Jeffrey Chedia knows that from experience. In 2010, long after he'd left Ann Arbor, he was working as a national football writer and living in Kansas City, Missouri. I got a call from the police
6: one day, and officer just asked me what I was doing, and they could come by and talk to
0: me. The police wanted to speak to him about a series of sexual assaults. They'd gotten a tip from someone who thought he matched the suspect's description. He gave the police ironclad proof that he couldn't possibly be the guy, that he hadn't been in town on the dates in question.
6: And they said, that's great. We appreciate that. But also, would you mind if
0: we asked you for a DNA sample? As a reporter at the Ann Arbor News, he'd interviewed black men caught up in the city's DNA dragnet. They told him about their disbelief and anger and pain. Now, he knew exactly
6: how they'd felt. Ultimately, I decided to to give them a DNA sample. I felt like, you know what, I want to have this as my, my way of knowing that I'm free to go, I'm not gonna have this conversation again. And I still feel like to this day, like did I make the right decision? If that was my son, would I have advised him to do that? Because the flip side of it is, is a very real thing. I don't wanna have you holding on to my DNA for the rest of my life, I'm not a criminal.
0: The man who'd committed those sexual assaults in Kansas City was convicted in 2011. Jeffrey Chidea isn't sure what became of the DNA sample he gave to the police. The men who had their blood drawn in Ann Arbor were able to get their samples back. But only in the most literal sense were they able to reclaim
1: what was taken from them. It was really bittersweet. It didn't change any of the harm that had been done to Blair or you know to anyone else who had had their blood taken. It didn't repair that.
0: Mary Beejian's group, the Coalition for Community Unity, ceased operations not long after the blood samples got returned.
1: What we had hoped here is that we could change the system in a way that this could not happen again in Ann Arbor. But that didn't happen.
0: When the serial rape investigation ended, the deputy chief of the Ann Arbor police wrote an apology. He said, When tips came in, we would have been remiss to not follow up on them. Still, innocent people were embarrassed, inconvenienced, and hurt. Blair Shelton says the police have never really reckoned with what they did and the harm it caused.
3: I'm willing to sit down and talk with them and maybe uh, try and get through to them some kind of way because I don't think all police officers are bad. But I think that more should uh, stand up. When something's not right, they
0: should uh, speak up
3: and say something.
0: Blair is in his early 60s now. A lot of people in Ann Arbor know him as the guy who rides a unicycle downtown. And he still plays music.
3: I think 50 years from now, when people look at this case, they might say, you know what, you know, he was right. But I I don't want this to be my legacy. I would like If I could get an opportunity to play the Star-Spangled Banner on my Fender Stratocaster and show people how good a guitar player I am, they'll remember that more than they remember this.
0: If you like what you're hearing and want to support One Year, you should sign up for Slate+. Plus. Members listen to all our episodes ad-free, and they get an exclusive episode at the end of our season that's all about the making of our series on 1995. One way to sign up for a subscription is directly in your Apple Podcasts app. Just go to apple.co slash year Next time on One Year 1995, a bilingual pop song takes over nightclubs and worms its way into our brains.
4: Then I start getting phone calls. Oh my God, are you hearing this song on Part 96? I say, what song? The Macarena thing you guys did. Everybody's going crazy. I say, yeah, yeah, whatever. They'll get tired of it.
0: This episode was produced by Evan Chung, Shana Roth, Madeline Ducharme, and me, Josh Levine. Editorial direction by Loan Liu and Gabriel Roth. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1995 at oneyearatslate.com. And you can call us on the One Year Hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Our mix engineer is Merritt Jacob. The artwork for one year is by Jim Cook. Peter Stipe is the author of a memoir. It's titled Badge 112. Thank you to Richard Sobel and the attorneys at Sobel Row Critchbaum LLP. Special thanks to Bob West, Conan Smith, Ellie Savitt, Elizabeth Daly, Samuel Gross, Gabriel Menlo, Jessica Seidman, Ingrid Sheldon, Malin Clyde, Marianne George, Michael Steinberg, Patrice Jones, Seth Mayer, Susie Schaefer, Jared Holt, Allison Benedict, Derek John, Holly Allen, Katie Rayford, Asha Saluja, Amber Smith, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, June Thomas, and Chow Tu. Thanks for listening. And heads up, we're going to be taking a break for the holidays. We'll be back with more from 1995 on January 6th.